We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Matt. And first of all, I'd like to say thank you for this opportunity to be part of the uh, podcast for Keep Coming Back. This isn't my first time sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I know that I've been in the rooms for about four years, and my sobriety date is 8-11-2020. My experience, strength, and hope you know, I don't think is is unique, but it's unique to me, and only because due to Alcoholics Anonymous and being part of this program, it's unique because every day gives me another reason to live a sober life, to reflect on where I'm at daily, to reflect on the people now that are in my life. And also to help correct and, and repair some of the damage and chaos that I've created in the past. Every morning I start with a reading from the 24-hour-a-day book. And that is the January 6th thought for the day. And it really didn't sink in until about the second year in the program when I knew that my sobriety was very important to me, and I'll just give a quick uh, recap of it. So January 6th, out of the AA thought for the day is keeping sober is the most important thing in my life. The most important decision I ever made was my decision to give up drinking. I am convinced that my whole life depends on not taking that first drink. Nothing in the world is as important to me as my own sobriety. Everything I have my whole life depends on that one thing. And I read that daily or I reflect on it daily. Um, one, it, it started with my sponsor. And we just kind of put that into our, our daily mantra. And I know that it is so easy, you know, that uh, since I'm so powerless over alcohol, that at any time, if I, become unguarded or I let my thoughts wander and pull away from my higher higher spirit or unplug from the rooms, that alcohol is still out there. It's prevalent in our lives. I go to get gas for my vehicle and every gas station is selling alcohol. I go to the grocery store, there's alcohol. The advertisements on television, these celebrities that promote alcohol, my daily life in business, the colleagues that are around me that uh, that drink uh, are, are still surrounded with alcohol. So again, it, it's just that matter of I know that if I have that one drink or that one slip, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And, and I know what it was like before my sober days. And, and I don't want to replay that. And that's why I work so hard daily to 
focus on the program, focus on the steps, but focus on what makes me a much happier and, and caring person. You know, just a quick history of my blurred past. Uh, I was born in 1962, and I didn't come into the program until my mid-50s. Even though I knew I had problems, I didn't admit to it, uh, nor did I have that pain and suffering enough where I had to admit my powerlessness over alcohol and openly tell others that my life was unmanageable. I was the one of seven children in my family. Neither one of my parents drank alcohol outside of maybe a social drink, but we never had alcohol around the house that I had seen as a, uh, as an issue or something that I saw growing up that it was a pattern that I developed, but it did come into play after my college career. I lived 35 miles from my high school and playing sports was huge in my life. But living that far away, I didn't really spend a lot of time with my friends or people that I hung with at school just because it was the distance and I had other things that I had to take care of family related and or you know, school related. So I really didn't become, you know, not that I was a prude or that I was a hermit. I mean, I saw alcohol and I tasted beer through high school and saw a lot of people that were doing more than beer at that point in time, but it wasn't prevalent in my life and, and nor was it important. And it probably didn't become important until after college when I was playing baseball and I was drafted by the Montreal Expos and I was playing a game down in Miami Beach and uh, I tore the rotator cuff on my shoulder after uh, two years of playing in the minors. And I remember laying on the turf during that game as the injury happened. And I never felt such, such excruciating pain in my life. Went to a, a surgeon in Miami and he repaired my shoulder and my baseball for that season was over. So the rehab would have been back in Illinois. I'm, I live, uh, about 45 minutes west of Chicago is where I, I grew up and lived. So the, going through the rehab was pretty uh, pretty mundane. That's all I was doing. I was still getting paid as a as a baseball player. Not a ton, but I figured that uh, it was enough for me to, to keep moving forward. I did have my college degree to fall back on. I, I did have a degree in business and uh so that wasn't an issue that I, I didn't have any education behind me. But now my dream of professional baseball was squandered and done. And pain pills entered my life. Uh, not that I was addicted to them, but it definitely helped through that rehab. And with that, now alcohol became part of the recovery uh, for rehab as well on, on my uh, rehabbing my shoulder and it just uh, seems so much quicker that you know a beer or so with a couple of the pills um wow it really made that i took that edge off and as i finished and got better and you know the surgeons had indicated that 
my arm was repaired that you know nothing physically could hurt it again uh mentally i i couldn't pick up a baseball again um, i tried throwing and just that mental uh, memory that i had from that injury i just could never shake that so now the decision in my life came now what and you know, i was still hanging around with a lot of my friends that I, I grew up with that were still living in the area. A couple of my college roommates were still local. And of course they had, uh, you know, uh, men's softball and, and other leagues that I was able to play. And at that point it was pretty exciting because now alcohol was every day. You know, we'd have beers before the game, after the game, we'd hang out, it was just part of growing up, I thought. So here I am at 22, 23 years old and thinking life is great. Didn't have to worry about a job yet um, because I was still getting paid and living with my uh, at, at home with my folks and my two younger siblings. Um, so really, there was no no pressure um, in, in me or on me to change my daily patterns. And I would stay out until two, three in the morning and come home and Groundhog Day. It was rinse and repeat every day. And all of a sudden, that routine became costly. Um, I was losing friends. And, you know, it came a point in time where it's like now the childish things or childhood dreams are no longer there. I guess it's time to find a career. And fortunately for me, I had a lot of people that I networked with. My dad was an industrial engineer for Sears Roebuck, and um, it was pretty cool. He had 42 patents, and I kind of aspired my whole life to be like him. I mean, I, I looked up to him and I respected him hugely. Um, but I didn't have the patience or tolerance to be as exact as he was in drawings and blueprints and things like that. But our, always, our conversation, I was to say, dad, you build it and I'll sell it because I knew that I could uh, really move on, on that business aspect of selling and very uh, speaking to people came very easy. Uh, I, I was well-versed in business techniques and sales as well as engineering. So with that, I ended up getting a job as a operations manager for the second largest company in the world. And I was fast-tracked through their system to a sales program as a director of sales based out of uh, Western Illinois. And with that, I started traveling internationally to visit some of the manufacturing facilities and co-packers that I was responsible for. And now this whole time of drinking now was becoming now extended into evenings now with colleagues and the, you know, everybody would have a couple beers and, you know, and at that point in my life, a couple beers was, was okay. I wasn't out to get demolished. I wasn't out to drink more than the, than the next, but I did like my beer. And again, I, I didn't see that there was any issues that I was hurting anybody or, or, that my life was going backwards. And 14 years later, the company moved from Chicago to 
the East Coast. And at that point in time, I was married, just had a our first daughter. And alcohol was really now something that became important to me, that I didn't think that I could do anything without taking the edge off. It was either, boy, I had a stressful day at work or pretty much any day that ended in a Y was uh, enough reasons for me to have a, have a couple beers and a couple beers now turned into a 12 pack a day, you know, in the weekends, my first wife, you know, drank uh, a lot and her parents and family did. And it just seemed to be that family thing to do. And we, you know, now I was surrounded by alcohol and again, there was no red flags. I didn't see anything going wrong because none of the bad things happened yet in my life. Didn't have a DUI, didn't lose a job yet. Didn't lose a house, didn't get divorced yet. Friends would, would come and go. And, you know, my ego was so uh, large at times that I just figured it was their loss. If they, if they wanted to step out of my life, so be it. I'd always find others. Now, 14 years later, we have two children and my divorce was on the, or my relationship was on the rocks. Yeah, I'm starting to spend more time traveling, starting to spend more time on the road. When I was home, I would still be that parent, the coach of both my children and their sports. But now it was no matter where I went, alcohol traveled with me. So if I went and I was coaching my son's baseball game, there was always a couple of beers in my trunk or something to take the edge off. And after the game, a couple of the coaches would have a couple of beers after. And I never looked at it as the jeopardy that I was putting my children in if they were in the vehicle with me. And that was that's very painful now to look back at and realize just how that was forming in my life that the people that I was supposed to love and care for and protect really now became secondary in my mind. So that alcohol has become has become so important that it was taking the place of my love and caring for the people in my in in my family and around me. That uh, you know it really didn't matter. Didn't matter what people thought. Didn't matter if if I was drunk and maybe missed uh, an event or, like I said, ninety percent of any of the events I went to, you know, the alcohol was a huge part of it. Um, I didn't know when to say when. So divorce came and it didn't affect me. I wasn't really shaken because I, it, I found that the blame wasn't due to alcohol. It was always somebody else. I could always justify and shift that blame elsewhere. And I, I really didn't know of, of anybody in AA. I wasn't surrounded by anybody that um, had had died or or anything due to alcohol or drugs at that point in my life in my uh, mid thirties now. So I moved to a nice uh, two bedroom apartment, not that far from my children, about forty five minutes. So working now as an engineer for a company based by O'Hare Airport. Again, fast tracked. Everything was working well. Had plenty of money. Now I'm single. 
and that alcoholic mind is just running riot. Sex became something that was very important to me. Relationships weren't. So for about a year, year and a half, it was go to work, drink, come home, go to a bar, find another woman, spend a, a night or two with them, and then, you know, cast them to the side. And it's hard for me to say that openly because that's not that's not me. That's not how I was raised. That's not that's not how I, I am as a person. I respect people, but it's amazing now when I look back at it that the alcohol just completely changed my identity and my beliefs and my philosophy in life. And I still wasn't wise enough to realize what road I was going down in the, the continued slide. Left that job and started working for another company two years later. Met a wonderful woman that uh, I had happened to, she was one of my colleagues at my new company and she went through a divorce. So we were just very good friends at that point in time. And a couple of years later, we started going out and we've now been married 17 years. And I can honestly say that if it wasn't for my wife, Renee, that I would probably be in jail, prison, or dead. And it took a couple of years for me to understand that, again, what I was doing to people around me until COVID hit. And now I'm working remote. All the gas stations were still open. She had to run down and I'd have a, you know, drink at night. And all of a sudden, alcohol became important to me in the morning. As soon as I woke up, I started playing in my head. You know, where's the alcohol from last night? Do I have any left? What can I do to go get some? Because the one unique thing was, is, is through COVID, my wife, they never had to uh, leave their offices. So she went to work every day and I knew her schedule like the back of my hand. 801, she was down the road, and then I could start my uh, you know, my day. And my day was just nothing but alcohol and more alcohol and trying to do my business and speak somewhat coherently to people where I thought I was coherent, but obviously I wasn't. So I got terminated. First time ever in my life, I got terminated from a job. And that was uh, after working for this company for five years. And uh, Renee, you know, knew what was going on. Now all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, you start hearing, you know, you need to stop drinking, you need to stop drinking, and it becomes louder and louder to the point where I'm like, you know, how do I turn this off? And, again, I'm intelligent enough to justify to anybody why I do things at that point in time. So I'm like, okay, I can probably – put this one to, in the rearview mirror. So I think I'll just go to an AA meeting. So I, I looked in the area, found an AA meeting, and it happened to be at one of the local hospitals. In the room, there was probably 75, 80 people. And I got in, it was a 7 o'clock p.m. meeting, and I got in there about three minutes to 7. And it was that wallflower that didn't really want to participate. 
I, the only reason I was there was to basically pacify my wife and, and hopefully I wouldn't hear that continued chirping of you need help. You better go to AA or go somewhere else to, to seek help. So as, as everybody's introducing themselves around the room, I introduced myself. Um, first time I ever said in a room that, you know, openly that I was an alcoholic. And now as the shares are going around the room, I'm sitting back trying to compare myself to everybody in the room. And all I can say in my head is, I'm not that bad. Nope, I don't do heroin, so I'm not that bad. Nope, haven't been in prison. Nope, didn't beat my wife, didn't lose my house. Yeah, I lost a job, but who cares? I found another one. You know, so I was able to justify again that, yeah, I'm not that bad. You know, and, and I was able to think that to myself as as I'm listening to people being honest and and humble in their shares. But again, I wasn't ready. I wasn't I wasn't there mentally. I wasn't there any other way but physically and again for the wrong reasons. And the main reason was to to shut my wife up. So come home and yeah, my wife greets me at the door and you know, she's feeling good that, boy, I took the first step and, you know, I'm like, this is pretty easy, you know, and I tried to explain to her, I'm like, you know, I'm not that bad. And I kind of walked through everything that I just played back in my head and I convinced her that, yeah, maybe I just need to slow down in drinking, you know, maybe instead of uh, vodka um, or a Captain Morgan, yeah, I'll go back to beer or, or yeah, maybe we can share a wine or two at, at night. And that lasted probably for about another probably 30 days, 60 days. And we ended up going on a all-inclusive vacation to Mexico. And I don't think I was sober for more than probably 20 minutes the whole trip. And I remember it, it, as clear as as clear as day when my wife got a phone call from her sister while we were there that her one sister passed away and that they were going to hold everything until we got back from Mexico. Now I wasn't there, you know, mentally to comfort my wife. I went through the motions and you know, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, geez, so sorry. And, you know, held her and hugged her, but you know, I figured, Hey, we're still on vacation. Well, little did I know that when I came home that next day, we're, we're going to the services and I had such a horrendous pain in my abdomen that I couldn't even drive. So I asked her to drive and I, and I was just in pain the whole ride. She'd hit a bump and I just, it was in, insane, the pain. So as I'm there, we get to the funeral home and, yeah, you know, I'm saying hello to her, her siblings and pay my respects. I had to go in the back of the funeral home and, and sit down because the pain was so intense. And her brothers are, are coming over to me. They're like, holy cow, you look you, know, you look terrible. And, and here we are for their sister that passed away, and, and they're concerned about me. So finally, I, I just grabbed her and I said, listen, you got to take me to the hospital. And at that point, I had pancreatitis. Didn't know what it was. Didn't know that alcohol played a 
you know, they keep rolling it. So I was in the uh, the hospital for seven days getting cleaned up. And the interesting thing was I, I wasn't, I didn't have the shakes. I didn't feel the void of alcohol, but, you know, I guess I didn't really, again, know the severity of my body and what was going on uh, until the doctor and, and I spent the last day before they let me go, uh, going over a few things and, you know, what it, what it would take to, you know, not have liver failure or diabetes or a uh, premature death due to alcohol. And again, that wasn't quite enough for me yet. You know, even though that was pretty painful, again, I could deal with the, the, the pain of it. Uh, it was the mentality, the, the mental psyche that I wasn't quite uh, ready to quit drinking yet. So trip to Houston, I now am a sales director for 17 states in all of Canada. And my company was hugely supportive of taking care of customers and customer appreciation and entertaining. And really there was no limits on my credit cards or, you know, there was no restrictions if somebody wanted to go out and drink all night, I was too obliged. Uh, you know, they're my customer, right? That wasn't good. That was not good for me at all. Uh, that that just continued to build that that wall of drinking, and and that spiral was getting deeper and deeper, and that hole that I was digging was getting deeper and deeper. But again, I man, how important was I that you know I had all this power. I I would go to some of the the best hotels and you know, I'd walk through the lobby and you know the, the bartender would say, Hey Matt, how you doing? And yeah, you ready for a drink? And I'd say, Yeah, I'll be right back down. Well I didn't. I'd go over, have one and take one up to the room and then I would check in. In insanity at its best. And it it that continued for five years. That brings me up to 55 years old. And I remember leaving the hotel. And I probably drank a fifth of Captain Morgan, jumped in the rental car that I had. It was a great BMW, drove to the airport, which is probably 45 minutes away. Don't remember driving there at all. Don't remember parking the vehicle at all. I remember walking to the shuttle, to the bus shuttle, and all of a sudden I just had a huge breakdown that I couldn't control my emotions. So here I am standing in the middle of the shuttle area, bawling my eyes out profusely. People are coming up to me like, you know, are you okay? And I'm, you know, just just so uh, intoxicated that, you know, the emotions didn't make sense. But the one thing I did do was I called my sponsor. What a great thing to do, calling him after you know, I was so intoxicated because I knew what I should have done. And again, we always hear about you know, early, uh, early on in the program, that phone is heavy. Well, you know, I was able to like kind of keep that phone hidden um, until now. And I made that phone call. And this was the first time in my life that I had heard the words from 
a fellow AA that registered in my brain. And I will never forget the words that, that he shared with me. Now he's in Chicago. I'm in Houston. I have no idea how the hell I'm going to get to my plane or to the gate. But at that point, uh, it, it didn't matter. I was on the phone with him and he goes, where are you at? And I told him, he goes, can you get to the plane? I said, you know, I'm not quite sure yet. And as we kept talking, he goes, I will leave everything I'm doing right now and fly to Houston and bring you home, brother, because I love you. And I think I, I may have had one sobering thought for the first time in a long time as, as I heard those words. And I, I just kind of couldn't, couldn't speak. I, would, I was speechless at that point. Here's, here's this person I've known for maybe a year and a half. And yes, we started working the steps and yes, I shared and, you know, I, I thought I was honest and, you know, just wasn't quite, wasn't quite totally honest yet until then. And I said, you know what? I, I said, I'll, I'll find a way home. And he goes, call me when you get to the gate. So now I had in my mind, to go from the shuttle to the gate, get to the gate. And I'm like, do not move from the seat. And I didn't somehow get on the plane and first class. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, do not order another drink. And I didn't get to O'Hare airport. Limo picks me up and they knew when they picked me up, they better have alcohol in that, in that limo or they wouldn't get the kind tip that I would normally give them. So they picked me up and, you know, again, after a two and a half hour flight, I was still pretty inebriated, but, you know, it was at least somewhat, uh, I guess, getting towards sober. If I could say that I was not mumbling and stumbling around. So I get in the back of the limo and all this alcohol was there and didn't touch it. Get home, explain to my wife what had happened after I called my sponsor. And we sat there, and, and again, I just bawled my eyes out. And at that point in time, I wasn't quite ready yet because I still think that the influence of alcohol was what made me so emotional. But the one thing I could hang on to was that message of hope that I had from my sponsor, that if I just paid attention, if I listened, I could have a sober life like him. And in the meantime, it was, you know, now I would start to go to meetings. And it was, you know, everything was going well. And I had about a year sober. And again, I, I didn't have a lot of those yets. I didn't lose my house in my mind to alcohol. My first wife, I'm like, you know, again, I'm still trying to justify things in the past because I haven't aligned yet just how that that obsession with alcohol and the abuse of alcohol, just how that has skewed me mentally and physically and emotionally. I was numb to emotions, even with my new wife. And my new wife wasn't a drinker at all. Um, as a matter of fact, if she drank, it was usually because I forced it on her. You know, now the, the first three steps to recovery 
start playing a bigger role in my life. I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol and that I couldn't do it by myself. Two, I, I believed in a higher power and I knew that I needed something and somebody that was there for me that I could believe in that I could not, that I, I could give up my control to and not have to be that person that was in control 100% of the time. And then once I figured that person out and, and my spirituality started to grow a little bit, now I knew that I decided to turn myself over to that higher power. Not that it was easy. Not that I still knew what I was doing. I mean, I felt like I felt like Bambi coming out of the thicket. You know, it was my my knees were were weakened. My you know nimbleness that I felt like I was so nimble when I was drinking because that's who I was. I had to be the the person of attention. I had to be the loudest in the room or the funniest. Um, I knew I was. I, I definitely was a better dancer back then than I am now, but. Probably a good thing that I realized that I shouldn't be a dancer. I wouldn't have recognized those things without this program and, and going through the steps. Having phone numbers became important to me because the new job that I had after COVID is something that I commute to daily, come home nightly, and the opportunity to have Zoom meetings when I can't attend a physical meeting has really been a, a godsend because I'm accountable to those people, whether I see them physically in the room or I'm with them on a uh, Zoom call or a Teams call. And I need that accountability in my life because once I feel that I don't have to be accountable to people, again, I, I just... I can create chaos and and to no abandon, to reckless, just be reckless. Now, my life is getting better uh, in a lot of ways. The obsession for alcohol isn't there. Um, I am on the road to recovery. So just uh, over two years now and made quite a few amends in my life already. I still have a huge issue with two of my children that uh, I'm not close to right now. And one of the things that I've, I've worked on is that patience and wait for them to come to me because I can't force my will on them. I can't try to overpower them like I once did uh, with grandiose vacations or a custom home or the cars that I bought them, um, you know, the wedding that I paid for for my daughter. Um, you know, I, I can't hold those in front of them anymore and, and say, look what I've done for you. Because the one thing that I recognize now that I, that I did was obviously had a huge impact on scarring them. And we haven't crossed that bridge yet to fully understand where they're at. And when I went through an IOP program, I did have both of them at one of the family days. So they knew that I'm, 
uh, in a recovery program. And I did get out of the recovery program. And I had a relapse a little over two years ago. And it was not a long one. It was a two, three-day bender. But again, it's that experience, strength, and hope stepped up. And the army of people that I had around me cared enough to love me and embrace me and welcome me back into the rooms. So when I look at how my life has changed, I am not the center of attention anymore, nor do I try to make myself uh, or put myself in that position. I'm not the high-ranking business executive that uh, I was in the past. Humbleness is a daily requirement in my life because if my ego gets out in front of me, it's, uh, it's just a quick path to going back to my old ways. So staying within myself, staying in my lane, uh, my sponsor, you know, we, we kind of bring up, you know, an analogy of golf. You know, one of the things that, that we always tell each other and he tells me is, man, just stay in your fairway. You know, a couple of times you'll hit it in the rough, but you know how to get out of it, but just stay in your fairway. Don't stray to the other parts of the course. And that's my life is if I try to unplug from the program, walk away from the steps, walk away from my spirituality and and my higher power, I'm just walking back to uh, a disaster. And the pain, again, I may not have, have suffered a lot of belongings and personal effects that I've, that I've lost. I chalked that up to, you know what, I wasn't prepared to keep them. And that was just part of my past. And I, again, I, I didn't look at it that alcohol played a, a role in it. And I, I look at right now that if I go back to drinking or if I leave the program, I have a lot to lose now. And I, I value where I'm at now more than I did in the past. And as, as we say in the promises, we don't shut the door on the past. I, I need to look back once in a while. And as haunting as it can be, that's what keeps me looking out the, out the front windshield instead of the rearview mirror. Um, and I guess that's why the, the windshield's bigger and, you know, the, the future is in, in front of me. And as I get older, I want the experiences with my wife. And our grandchildren, we have five grandchildren from my wife's two daughters, that I play a pivotal role in their lives. They've never seen me drink. They've never seen me to the point of intoxication. And I hope that my two younger children uh, come back into my life sometime in the future here. And, uh, you know, we can start building that relationship back. But again, it, it's not on my time, it's on theirs. So the one thing that, again, I, I think has become important to me, as I said at the very beginning of, of my share here, is that January 6th reading. That if I'm not taking AA in my program and my sobriety as the most important thing in my life, 
if that is not the first thing in my mind in the morning when I hit my knees or the last thing before I hit my knees again before bed and do my step 10, then I know that it's nothing but that devil on my shoulder that's going to keep tapping. You know, that patience of alcoholism, that it'll wait us out. And I know that because I've witnessed that. So I'm thankful for being where I'm at today. Do I have a lot to learn? Of course I do. Am I the most experienced person in AA? I don't know. I look at every day as as long as I keep keep my faith and and trust in front of me that the rest of the world kind of falls in place. If I continue to work with other alcoholics and convey the message and, and help another alcoholic towards a path of sobriety, I spend a lot of time there. I spend a lot of time in, in service work. Not only in the program, but but outside of other community, with other community uh, groups. I'm part of a men's group that helps sharpen my spirituality and, and plugs me in closer to God. That years ago, I, you know, it wasn't that important to me. Did I believe in God? I believed in God when I was playing baseball and I went four for four, or we won the game, or I hit the game-winning hit. But I also remembered that if I drank the night before and got totally hammered, and I had a great game the next day, I better do that again because it worked. You know what? Those were skills and tools that were were nothing but just, uh, you know, thoughts that, that weren't true, that wasn't reality. But I was able to build that into my life early. And, and I, I kept hanging on to that stuff. And, and those things weren't, they were toxic in my life. And again, I, I made the comment that if that toxicity stayed in my life, I don't know if I'd be here today. Again, I, I, I can't say that I'd have the things in front of me that I'd have the life that I have now without AA. And I, again, the stigmas of AA when I first came in, and again, my, my head wasn't 100% clear at that given point in time when I first hit the rooms. It was all these bumper sticker slogans and, you know, keep coming back. It works if you work it sober. And, you know, I mean, you name it, it was there in front of me in the readings. And and until I took it seriously and until I surrendered to the program and I surrendered to the people in the program and my life, that I knew that if I leave that sober lifestyle, if I don't continue to work it every day for the rest of my life, I've got other things that I'm going to lose, and I'm not willing to lose them right now. I'm thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful for the patience and understanding of my my wife. She's a lovely woman. I still have some cleanups that I have to do with her and my amends are endless with her because there has been a lot that in the 17 years of marriage that I've done to her. And I don't know if there's, you know, I hope I've got enough time in my life that she feels comfortable and confident that I've stayed sober and, and that trust is 100% and our relationship does nothing but continue to grow. And again, I could look back at my steps and at that 12th step and, you know, just know that I can manage my own life and that spiritual progress continues every day. 
And my life's not perfect. I don't know anybody's that is, but I can recognize now with a sober and clear mind and total being totally coherent in everything that I do that I can recognize when I'm a little bit off. And when I'm a little bit off, that just means I need to get a little bit deeper with the program. And having this ability to be introduced to this podcast and listening to other other readings, um, you know, it, it, it's a tremendous thing. And I'm so glad that I had this opportunity. Hopefully, something will resonate in my share and in my story of experience, strength, and hope that helps another struggling alcoholic, a, another person that is uh, feeling a little bit off that day and just maybe needs just a little bit of a nudge back towards you know the middle. I never knew what keep your side of the street clean meant. I never knew what the sunny side of the street was because, again, if it was sunny if it, or if it was rainy, or if it was Monday through Sunday, it really didn't matter because alcohol was, and I say was in past tense, was very important to me, and now it's not. But the most important thing to me is, again, my network of fellow AAs, the program, the fellowship, the ability to be anywhere that I go and have the ability to walk into an AA room or the ability to meet another AA and work the steps and work the program to the best of my ability. And that's the focus that I have for the rest of my life. Um, and with that, I'm going to keep coming back. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Matt. I enjoyed listening to your story. I think that you're a great storyteller. You have a nice, deep voice. So I was with you there. Every word. <laughs> Thank you so much for your service. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Sure. Do you think that you were born an alcoholic or do you think you became an alcoholic because you abused alcohol or neither of those scenarios? You know what? I, I A great question. And I'm going to say that it's probably more of the latter because I don't, I don't know enough of my lineage because I was never around people that drank my, my family, my siblings did, but my parents didn't and my relatives, it wasn't a, a big part of their life. Not to say that I didn't have that gene. I may have, you know, I had a couple of uncles that obviously liked their beer, but I never looked at that as the vehicle that probably got me going. I think it was more of my surroundings and probably insecurities. It's funny because I think I've accomplished a lot in my life, but I still had insecurities that I'm asked with, with alcohol. And again, being part of the crowd was, you know, was usually when I, I did my best work because I could shine and I could be verbose and be that, uh, I'll say that master manipulator on on getting pretty much what I wanted at that given point in time. So I, I would probably lean more towards I built that obsession with drinking in as I was growing up. Probably my mid to late twenties is I think when when I got on that bike and I didn't get off it until my fifties. Yeah. It doesn't really matter, but I'm always curious when there's a a late start and harder when there is not 
somebody in the family or you said you didn't know anybody in the program. You didn't know, you didn't know what normal looked like or what alcoholic drinking looked like necessarily. I, I, I didn't. And that's, and it's so interesting because the people now that I surround myself with, and obviously I know the 10 people that I'm most, mostly close to are people that are in the program. And obviously they're part of my men's group as well. And there's a few women that, I I love dearly as well that are in the program, but when I listen to them and I hear that they grew up in an an alcoholic environment and they started early on, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, could it have been obviously it, yes, it could have been. I mean, like I said, it could be in, in my, in my makeup, in my DNA, but I didn't grow up that way. And I didn't do the things that, I, I could go back to him and say, man, I remember when I was 12 and, you know, I stole a bottle of booze from my dad because he didn't see it. And it was off to the races from that point on. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's something that I've, I contemplate a lot and something that I've thought of, but I, I kind of, like I said, I kind of lean into more of it where as I was getting older and alcohol was was available to me and i think it was the excuse to be one of the guys as one of the younger guys in the group now all of a sudden i could be one of one of the cool kids with the older guys yeah i mean that that's that's an awesome question i i guess that's kind of where my head is it's it's <laughs> i was a late bloomer but i caught up quick yeah yeah and I, I I think it's just worth noting that we come in so many different variations and sizes and forms in our stories. I don't relate to the, oh, I had a first drink and everything aligned, the universe right. aligned. I don't have that either. So it doesn't make me any less of an alcoholic. It's just exactly maybe I just don't remember having that feeling, and I did. <laughs> For sure. Okay. Well, so- I, mean, I, I always thought it was a sin when somebody left, you know, a little bit of alcohol in a glass, you know, so it's like. Oh. Well, I uh, hell, I'll finish that if you're not, you know. So I didn't yeah, understand just, when people would stop the fun and move on to coffee. I'm like, wait, the night's still young, right? And I was like seven when I had this perception of why are you guys <laughs> switching to coffee? Pour another glass. Exactly. So you had said so because of that question, I'm I'm building up to this next one that happens to work out a bit because I'm curious to know. Does sobriety and the rooms of AA bring you back to who you used to be, or have they created a new mat? And this is in relationship to what you said about, that's not me, I'm not that person, alcohol totally changed my identity, my beliefs, my philosophy of life. So are you back to what you were before alcohol, or are you a new version, or somewhere in between? You know, great question, and I, I think I can zero in on it. I remember going through my eighth step with my sponsor and he happens to live literally right where my grade school, where I went to grade school and he was down the hill and in a new subdivision. And he's one of those nuts that likes to do shit early in the morning. So it's, you know, we see the sunrise and then we, you know, get into the, into our conversations. And I, all I could keep doing was looking at my grade school and as I was going through the stop, I'm like, man, 
when did I, now I started thinking myself, when did I go sideways? When did I change? And he asked me a question. He goes, how were you in third grade? I said, you know, I said, from what I can remember, you know, I was very vocal, of course. Both my parents were professionals, so I was educated, very respectful. And I, I think, in a way, I, I thought back, but I was kind of manipulative because I wanted control then. And I would do a lot of things to get that control. I can look at it now and say, was that an alcoholic type thought process? And it is, but alcohol wasn't part of my life. So when I look at it, say, when, when did alcohol step into my life? And when did Matt change? And where am I at now? I'm, I'm going to say that I'm, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's enough time left in my life to get back to where I was before alcohol really, before I was able to, to shake it and start retooling myself to go back to that. And, and I'm not necessarily thinking that I have to. I think now that my life is settled, I don't have the chaos saving a ton of money. I'm not, I'm not putting my life in jeopardy or anybody else else's life in jeopardy driving intoxicated or whatever. So I look at it and say, is the new mat the same version of the old mat before alcohol? And I can't say that because I, I think, you know, and I said early on in, in my share when I started talking about the experience, strength, and hope in my history, I said, and I re, I referred to it as a blurred history. And and it's it's interesting that a lot of those things that non-alcoholics bring up of, oh, I remember when I was in fifth grade and Johnny and, and I were playing and I got, you know, whatever. I don't remember that stuff. And was it important to me? I don't know. Maybe the alcohol killed that side of my brain cells. I don't know. But I really believe that doing the right thing now is continuing my path of sobriety. And the tool that's worked, the tool that works the best is me being in this program. And I'm happy with that because things are coming back to me. I've got a great job again without a lot of the fanfare, which is awesome. You know, so I never thought that my ego would, would be comfortable flying under the radar. But that's how I prefer to, to, to fly now, and it's great. I can look my wife in the eye now and the family members that are close to me and not have any guilt or remorse because I didn't do anything to feel guilt. I've already amended my past with them to the most part where I'm not hiding anything. You know, I'm not going to say I'm 100% clean at, on in each corner, but I'm pretty darn close. You know, did I have a great childhood? I did. Yeah, I really did. I had great parents. Um, I lost them when I was 25 and, and um, you know, within two years of each other, and that was painful. Alcohol numbed me from that. You know, but but I guess to answer your question, I, I think I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. If, if, if I'm <laughs> to make it short instead of just elaborating, but am I where I was? No. Do I want to be there? I can't tell you. 
Um, I like where I'm at now. Can I be better? I, I guess every day I'm sober, I, I work towards that. And uh, I, I think that's kind of the my daily goal is, is just continue this path of sobriety the best I can and, and help anybody else I can along the way. I read the 24 hours a day as well. And I love that you started your share with that reading of, what is it, January 6th. Yep. Love it. Love it. I think that was a great answer. And it did connect back to the beginning of your story and your 24 hours a day share, your daily mantra. You talked about this wonderful moment where your sponsor was willing, was just going to get on a plane and come to you in Houston and get you back home safely. And I know that that is the love that is found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I even say, I don't like everyone in the rooms, but I love everyone in the rooms. And anybody, even the ones I don't particularly care for, could call me (laughs) and I would get on a plane and I would bring them home safely because that's what we do, right? 100%. So for the newcomer listening, what message do you want to leave with them about the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and what they'll find when they get here and stick around? Well, I think one, you got to be there and you have to be there daily or, or whatever the frequency is of, of the program or, you know, where, where you need to be. And right now I, I do probably between zoom and physical meetings, I'm, I'm doing six or seven a week. And sometimes I'll double up and I'll do an evening Zoom meeting. But I, I think the message that resonates now with me is, is you have to trust the people that, that are in the room and listen. And when you listen, you now become teachable. And if you're, you're not willing to listen, you're not going to be teachable and you're not going to want to be there, and the program's not going to, it, it's not going to work. You're going to relapse or or not not come back. And I've seen that. I've seen people that I got close to and people that I thought were uh, st- stick in the room, and they didn't. And I start to contemplate in my mind, say, was it something that I could have done to keep them in the room? Because I, I, I always want to be there. When I look at that, and, and I'm glad that you brought up that phone call, because I'm, I'm now that person on the receiving end of that phone call that is willing to do whatever it takes to keep that person safe and sober. Where previously, when I was early on, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't fully submit, I didn't give up my will and, and the, the ego was still prevalent in who I was and I wasn't teachable. I heard the words and the old Charlie Brown cartoons, you'd hear that wah, 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 wah. And, and that's kind of where I was probably, I'm going to say the first year of, of going into the rooms. I had some great takeaways. I listened and I would always walk away with something. Was I able to implement that and put that in my toolbox per se and use that? No, because you know what? I, I didn't know how to use it. I heard the words. I saw people in their pain. I saw the suffering. But until I felt like I hit that bottom, I was looking for something and, and I wasn't quite sure that 
the answer was in the room until that trip back from Houston. And, and when I realized that there was a person and people in my life that didn't really know me, I didn't know them for more than you know a year and a half, two years. Some people I, I met uh, weeks prior to that flight home. But these are people that are willing to put their life on pause, drop what they're doing, job-related, family-related commitments to help me as a suffering alcoholic. Who does that? And, and once I recognize that it's everybody that's in the rooms, I'm like, man, this is the place I need to stay. And that is, I think, the message is you got to f- stay around stick around long enough, one, so you can understand the promises and maybe start to get some of those promises back in your life. But I think to feel the love of the people that you're surrounding yourself with, and it's a lot different love than like like you explained. There's people that I probably won't ever have to my house for dinner or say, hey, let's vacation together. But you know what? That's a person that if I called them, I know that they would be there for me And I would definitely be there for them. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.